morning. Please take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 18. And please stand with me if you are able to read God's Word. We're talking today about church discipline as seen in Matthew 18, 15 through 20, and it strikes fear in the hearts of many. And whatever your experience of it has been, whatever your ideas of it are, uh, we need to get a handle on it so we can appropriately respond in our relationships in the body of Christ. We're going to read Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Let's pray. Lord God, we, we come to you now and we, we come to you needy. We come to you wanting. We, we come to you, Lord, dependent. Lord, we don't have all the answers. Lord, we... We confess to you that we often go astray. We thank you, Lord, that we have this privilege to come today together to sing praises to you, to pray, to hear your word. We thank you, Lord, for where you brought us in this past week, and thank you that you brought us by your faithfulness here today. But, Lord, we confess also we don't understand these verses. We think we know what they're all about, and we we know, Lord, that we need you to straighten our thinking out so that our practice in life, that our, that our relationships would be, would be whole, would be healthy, and would be honoring to you. So, Lord, we ask that you would have your way with us, that you would open up our eyes, that we would see wonderful things in your word. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. I told you last week, you know, if we've been progressing through the Gospel of Matthew, that it would be juicy this week, and God's Word does not disappoint. Church discipline. What do you think of when you hear those words, church discipline? Angry Christians throwing stones, or loving friends rescuing the wandering? Whatever your opinion, let me just say this right off the bat. We need more church discipline. We need lots and lots of church discipline. If a church wants to be healthy, it wants to be pleasing to God, it wants to be fruitful in ministry, what a church needs is lots of church discipline. The church of Jesus Christ is not as healthy as it says it is. There are lots of unhealthy relationships among believers. 
There are those engaging in gossip and slander and backbiting and accusations and distancing themselves from others. People unwilling, even in the same church, to be in the same room with other believers. You see, Christ's church is hemorrhaging from the inside out, and it is not a pretty picture. The church has a fever, and the only prescription is more church discipline. By the way, church discipline is one of the marks of a true church that the reformers outlined. The word being preached, the Lord's Supper and baptism being administered, and biblical leadership that aren't afraid to practice church discipline. I'm thankful for our elders at Grace who are not afraid to do what the Bible says even when it is the unpopular choice. But why is there so much misunderstanding about church discipline? We've all come in here today with an idea of it. You may have never heard of it, but most likely you have, and you've probably experienced either a negative or an awkward representation of it. Why is there so much misunderstanding of church discipline? It's because many have misused it and abused it over the years. Many people use it like a club to hit people with, a weapon, a punishment. An unloving slug to the stomach, a a punch to the face, a pile drive to the face. But that's not church discipline as God intends. What is church discipline as God intends? That's what we want to know today. And then we want to know what we ought to do. Why, Why is there so much misunderstanding? Because people have misused it. But what is it really? First of all, let's say let's talk about what it isn't. It's not angry Christians lobbing grenades with the pin already pulled. It might seem like that. It's not long-faced elders meeting out retribution against offenders. It's not a seek-and-destroy mission. It's not a slug to the stomach. It's not a slug. It's a hug. It's a holy hug. Give Give me a hug. It's a warm embrace. It's your brothers and sisters loving you so much that they don't want you to keep going in the way that you're going and so they love you enough to do the heavy lifting it's the church putting on its big boy pants and stepping up to the plate that's what church discipline is it's a rescue mission it's a reconnaissance mission it's not a teardown session it is for building up the body of Christ what it is is God's design to keep the peace And to maintain purity in his covenant community. It is God's way of dealing with sin so that things don't get worse. Like a hidden water leak that goes undetected until it is spoiled and ruined much of a house. Like a silent cancer eating away at a body until it gets detected. It's like rust. Sin is like rust and it's going to tear down and God has a design to keep the peace and to make sure that sin doesn't spoil his church. That's what church discipline is. Church discipline is kind of like parenting. A lot of parents will be afraid to lovingly and firmly discipline their kids. And then there's those parents that like that too much. There's those parents that discipline their kids out of anger to retaliate after, uh, on their kids. But others apply it lovingly and firmly Imperfectly, but trying their best to do what they know they need to do. 
You know, if you've never experienced church discipline, you might just fear the unknown. If you have experienced it, you may be fearing what you think is inevitable in your life. Now, church discipline is not what the Bible calls church discipline. God didn't name it church discipline, we did. That's the name that we gave it, and it has taken on some some pretty negative connotations. There's some pretty unsavory pictures in people's minds regarding church discipline. It really needs a new name. It needs a better name. What are some better names? Well, how about loving the body of Christ? How about church good stuff? How about restoring the peace? Wyatt Earp's Colt Revolver was called the Peacemaker. But somehow we've come to think that keeping the peace is a guy shooting bad guys. That's not the way it is meant to be in the body of Christ. Not the, not the way of biblical Christianity. We are meant to restore. We are meant to build up. We are meant to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. You call it church cleansing. Call it reconciliation. The way, God's way of reconciliation. Call it the covenant community in action. By the way, that's the context where these verses are found. Matthew chapter 18, as we've already seen, is the context of God's covenant community, Christ's covenant community in action, how life amongst His church ought to be. By the way, some of you have been hurt by some in that covenant community. Christians hurt Christians. Hurting people hurt people. And let me just say this, you may have gotten pretty emotionally attached to that hurt. You may have got to the point where that hurt from other Christians has become a major roadblock in your Christian life. But if you're one that comes here today hearing these words and are hurt, and you've been hurt by other Christians in the covenant community, let me just say, I am sorry for that hurt. But we've got to look at this topic. It's, it's what's next in Matthew. And we're not going to hide from the harder topics. So many have been zapped by fellow soldiers, tased by their own team, hit by friendly fire or unfriendly fire. Either way, we are called to love Christ's church. Some people get fed up with Christ's church. We are, though, called to love Christ's church. We are called to be careful with one another. We are called to to handle with care. Church discipline, keeping the peace, church good stuff, has a definite purpose. It's, there's, it's, it's for something. The purpose is that, that God's glory would be seen in the church and in the world as believers live in peace with one another. That relationships in Christ's church are so important to God that we must go to great lengths to restore peace. Be peacemakers. 
See, God wants his people healthy, God wants his people thriving, and God wants his people governed by his word. So how does it work? How does, how does keeping the peace work? How does church good stuff happen? Well, we see in verse 15 that there's a situation that happens. Something happens. Your brother sins against you. Let's remember the context of Matthew 18, 15 through 20. It is of utmost importance. Context is always important when we're handling Scripture. But it is of utmost importance if we're going to rightly divide this passage, if we're going to handle it accurately, we must consider the context because many of us have been taught this passage wrongly this context is life in the king's covenant community and and the context is one of humility as we saw at the beginning of the chapter and of not causing your brother to stumble not causing your brother to sin this is the other side of that when someone has sinned against you what do you do what is outlined here is four steps four four stages of of church good stuff and they are not a list to follow in the sense of uh, heartlessly just checking things off. This is normal everyday Christianity. This is loving the body of Christ. This is believers behaving biblically. It's not really church discipline, it's church discipleship is what it is. It's to be followed humbly in love. Look with me at verse 15. Jesus has already talked about the parable of the lost sheep where God cares so much for the one that is strained that he will go to great lengths to find and to bring back the one who is strained. And then he says, and if your brother sins against you, don't cause your brother to stumble. Go after the wandering. And then when your brother sins against you, what ought you to do? There has been an offense First thing we have to ask ourselves is, was it real or imagined? A lot of us will say, well, they did this against me. We don't really know for sure if they did. And so we, we just kind of continue in a cool uneasiness, a, a hostility even, latent hostility towards our brother or our sister because look what they did to me. Jesus said, if your brother sins against you, So to qualify, it must be sin that they engaged in. Someone has sinned against God and you. Someone has violated God's word, God's standard, and it has affected you. Personally. So when something like that happens between two believers, what are you to do? Jesus says, go and talk in private. That's step one. Go and talk in private. The idea here is telling the truth in love. It is rooted in Leviticus chapter 19, verses 15 through 18. Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 15 says this. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord, God says. He's saying, my authority is on this. My stamp is on this. Don't do that. And then he says in verse 17, you shall not hate your brother in your heart. You shall not, but you shall reason 
frankly with your neighbor lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then he says, I am the Lord. My stamp of approval is on it. My authority is on it. My assurance is attached to it. Go and talk in private, Jesus says. It's a private meeting. What that means is you don't wear a wire. You don't tape record the conversation. You don't have someone hiding in the next room with the ear, uh, with, their, uh, with a cup up against the wall. It's a private meeting between you and one other person. That's it. And you're not going to go and report to your buddies and your friends afterwards what they said. It's between you and them alone. Proverbs 29, 25 verse 9 says, Argue your case with your neighbor between himself and you and do not reveal another's secret. What is rampant in the body of Christ is people revealing other people's secrets. What's rampant in the body of Christ is people completely ignoring step one and digging their own tributary around the elephant in the room, coming up with their own artery and and saying, I know better than God. I'm not going to do this. I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to go lobby. I'm going to go slander. I'm going to go gossip. I'm going to go take care of matters and put them in my own hands. There's a way that seems right unto a man. It's the way of death. It messes the body of Christ up when we go around what God has given us. But we're all afraid to go and talk in private with our brother when we know they've sinned against us or even when we think they've sinned against us. What's that private meeting supposed to be about? It's to go, he says, and tell him his fault. You, you shine the light on it. Bring it to light. Expose it. Let them hear what you have to say. It's between you and them. It's a private meeting. You put the reading glasses on. You put your contact lenses on. Or you, you put them on for them. You, you get a magnifying glass out and say, look, I need to show you something here. And Jesus says... That if he listens to you, and that, by the way, that doesn't mean, oh yeah, I, I, blah, 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 I'm, I'm listening. Talk to the hand. It's nothing like that. The, the word listen here means to listen and then to do it. It's listening to the point of obedience. They hear you. They say, yeah, I, you're right. I'm wrong. Please forgive me. I repent. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. You've won your brother over. You haven't scored points over him. You've embraced him. You're you're, you're reconciled. You're together again. There's redemptive purpose. And by the way, we need to back up in Matthew. We need to go to Matthew 5. Just do a little uh, review here. Matthew 5 and verse 23. Let's remember what we're to do when we know someone has something against us validly. Verse 23. If you are offering your gift at the altar, this is, this is Jesus. In the, this is the best preacher ever preaching the best sermon ever. And he says, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you. You're trying to worship God and you know, you know there's something wrong between you and another brother and it's because you did something to them. This is a valid one. It's not, well, they're holding a grudge against me for no reason. There is reason and you know it. What are you to do? Verse 24. 
leave your gift there before the altar and go. Yeah, that means get up and just leave. Go make it right. Jesus knew we'd have cell phones. Text them right now. Walk out of the room, make a call. Leave, leave your gift before the altar. First be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift because otherwise it's a sham. Because otherwise it's fake. Because otherwise you're putting on a show. It's easy though to let anger override um, in these situations and, and sin worse than the offense that was against us in our response. When we go and slander someone else, we go and gossip about them behind their back, we go tell all our friends and build a case about them, we now have created a situation where they need to come to us. Doesn't take away their offense, but what happens is layer upon layer upon layer of gunk gets built up and there's no more viscosity in the body of Christ. You can't work the right way. You can't, uh, you can't uh, interact the right way. Uh, gospel preaching gets choked off by that. Outreach becomes non-existent. We become inwardly focused in our little soap operas about what everybody did to us. Jesus says, go and talk in private. Tell the truth in love. Tell the truth in love. Go in private. Keep it private. And if it works, praise God. James chapter 5 and verse 19 says, My brothers, if any among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. That's to be approached with humility. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you to be tempted. Go in private. Tell the truth in love. And if he listens to you, you've gained your brother. You can imagine what the disciples were thinking. Jesus then says, but, if he does not listen, If he does not listen to the point of changing his ways, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If Paul was writing these words, he would have been writing with tears. Jesus probably didn't have a smile on his face when he said these words. This is serious business in the body of Christ. If he doesn't listen to you, then you've got to take it another step further. And step two is bring one or two others. And in that step, you are, you are confirming the truth in love. It's based upon Deuteronomy chapter 19 and verse 15, which says this, A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. If a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord. You see, there's a reason you bring one or two others with you. And it's not what you think. It's to protect the accused. 
first and foremost. Let's say you're wrong. Let's say it's all in your head. Let's say you've imagined it and you've gone and done what God says to do and they say, I didn't do it. I didn't do what you say you, that I did. You say, wow, they didn't listen to me. I've got to bring two others. But you have one or two others with you and they've got to be honest people and they've got to be coming humbly in love. That's the context. They can't be people who have a vendetta against this person. And they come and they might say, you know, he's right. He didn't do this. We got to just let this go. Bring one or two others with you. You're to confirm the truth in love. And by the way, I believe this means two or three witnesses of step two, not people who saw the original offense. People who who are going to be with you in humility and in love and, and try to work this out, try to make peace. Try to bring about some good stuff. And both parties are being protected here by, from being falsely accused. But he goes on. Jesus knows our frame. Jesus knows what we're like. And then Jesus says in verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, now you've got refusal after refusal i'm not going to listen to you you're not right i'm going to keep going the way i'm going jesus says in verse 17 if he refuses to listen to them tell it to the church what he's telling them to do is tell it to the church communicate the truth in love it it had started a private matter go in private it became a semi-private matter two or three other people involved. Now it has become a public matter. Now it's public. Tell it to the church. You can't get around this one, but many have tried. The reason why some of you have never heard of church discipline is because you go to churches that, or you've been to a church that never practices it. Tell the church. Ecclesia. The gathering, the community. Church is used twice here in Matthew. In chapter 16, he says, I'm going to build my church. That's, that's the, the, the universal church, all true believers of all time who have come to faith in Christ. But here he's saying, tell it to the church. He's not saying that I'm to broadcast it to all believers everywhere in the world right now. He's saying that the assembly, the local church needs to take care of this and he goes on he says if he refuses to listen even to the church if it gets to that if it has to get to that you're grieving over it you're weeping over it you're you're appealing to them to to change their ways they won't listen then you've got to step four remove them from fellowship you can call it excommunication if you want it's not the worst word in the world Removal from fellowship. He, he's saying you've got to keep living the truth in love. You've got to officially break fellowship that has already been broken. The fellowship's gone. It's a sham if they stay. Don't pretend things are all right. Families do that all the time, don't they? An elephant is sitting, sitting right there in the middle of the room. It's a big pink elephant. And everyone walks around it. People build around them. It's remodeled. What are we going to do with the elephant? Oh, just what elephant? 
Don't pretend things are all right. Jesus is saying, be honest. Be humble, be loving, be honest. Don't say peace, peace where there is no peace. He says, let them be to you as a a Gentile and a tax gatherer. I'm sure Matthew, the tax gatherer, loved that. A Gentile and a tax farmer, literally. One who farmed taxes. Those excluded from the community of faith. Gentiles and tax gatherers. And why were they excluded from the community of faith? Because they deliberately disobeyed God. They deliberately went away from God. And Christ doesn't want his church messed up. Why is church discipline, why is church good stuff so so necessary but ignored? Why do most Christians and most church leadership teams conveniently ignore it? And then why are we have such unhealthy churches on the inside, even though they might look good on the outside? A lot of times it's because of misunderstanding of Scripture. People haven't done their homework and saw what the Bible actually says. Sometimes it's hardness of heart. Most of the time it's hardness of heart. Anger and bitterness and fear develop and create a hard, crusty buildup that, that, that chokes life off. It reduces effectiveness. There, there's no vitality. It's like a disease that saps you of, it, of, of your strength. You can't do what you're called to do. And then there's the fear of man that brings a snare. Caring more about what others say than what God says. Well, I can't do that because people will say that I'm being unfair. People will say that I'm being judgmental. People will say that I'm being hateful. What would God say when you disobey his word? Where in Scripture do we see this? We see it. 1 Corinthians 5 is one example. Paul says in verse 1, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. And then he says, are you arrogant? You know, excuse me, he says, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. He says, For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. He has to be out of the assembly because he has already taken himself out of the assembly. Your boasting is not good, Paul says. Do you know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. Look, there's nobody without sin. But those who continue in outright sin need to be dealt with lovingly and firmly. He says... Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. The blood of Christ was spilled. Don't trample on the blood of Christ by ignoring what he says. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters since then you would have to go out of the world. But I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. 
If someone says, I'm a Christian, but he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or idolatry or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, and he says, not even to eat with such a one. Don't, don't go there. Because the person is deluding themselves into thinking that everything's okay, and they think you agree with them. He says, purge the evil person from among you. No one can, should ever do that arrogantly. No one should ever do that unlovingly. No one should ever do that harshly. No one should ever do that sinfully. Yes, we know that happens. But God's word stands, and we have got to follow the word. Removal from fellowship, living the truth in love, doing it with fear and trembling. By the way, what happened in, 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 the, in the church at Corinth? Look with me at 2 Corinthians chapter 2. It seems that there was repentance. Here's what Paul said. I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. It was painful. They felt it. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And as I wrote, as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart. That's the heart behind making the peace. With many tears, he says. With many tears. Not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. This was done out of love. And then he says in verse 5, Now if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure not to put it too severely to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough so that you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. It seems that repentance had happened. They were to then welcome this brother back into fellowship and not keep him outside. One thing for us to remember is that the leadership team of a church shouldn't get involved in this up until uh, step three and you should rarely ever get to step three. If we're doing what we're called to do as believers, we're doing step one and we're, we're getting reconciled. We're not skirting around it and doing something else. We're doing what God wants. If, if believers would do step one, if believers would you know, put on their big boy pants and, and step up to the plate and, and take the chance and actually do step one, we wouldn't need step four, two through four most of the time. But what happens? Instead, people will gossip and slander and accuse and build a case, and then they create a need for someone to go to them. And layers of disunity and unhealthiness continue to build up. So what do we do with that? We find ourselves right here, right now. What do we do right now? I say start acting biblically right now. Get a fresh start right now. I want to give you five resolutions. They're not going to be on the screen. Resolutions where you decide, where you resolve by God's grace to act in ways that honor God. Number one, resolve to please God rather than yourself. Ephesians 5.10 says, try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Learn what is pleasing to Him. 
Prove what is acceptable to him. Find out what pleases him. Resolve to please God rather than yourself. Number two, resolve to live biblically, not foolishly. Resolve to live biblically, not foolishly. Second, Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 10. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch and Iconium and Lystra, what persecutions I endured, yet from all of them the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you've learned it and how from childhood you've known and been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to give you, make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture, Paul says, is, is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. The man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. God wants to use his word. That the Holy Spirit uses the, the, the word of God in the lives of the people of God to, to teach, to reprove, to correct us, and to train us in righteousness. That we would be ready for every good work. Resolve to live biblically, not foolishly. Most Christians, though, live without a, world, without a biblical worldview. Instead, they base their ideas on and their reactions on a mixture of pop psychology and worldly wisdom and, and syncretistic religious ideas. James tells us that is natural, earthly, and demonically inspired. So when we say, well, you know, I really believe, or I think, or I feel, and it's not connected to the Word of God rightly handled, then we're covering outright refusal to do what God says. Number three, resolve to live in love and peace, not hate. Romans 12 says, as far as possible, as far as it depends upon you, live at peace with all people. You might not be able to make peace. You go and try, but they won't. As far as possible, live at peace with all. Number four, resolve to repent of any ungodly communication you've engaged in, such as talking behind people's backs and building cases around them, even insinuating things about people. You've injured others with your selfish choices. Turn back to Christ in all your ways. Repent of any ungodly communication that you've engaged in. And the last one I would say is is resolve to follow step 0.5 before you even think of step 1. Hmm? 0.5. Some people call it point zero. I call it 0.5. What is it? It is spirit-led forbearance. Spirit-led forbearance, uh, the most self-forgetting of choices you can make, where you choose to endure the pain, and you choose to endure the, 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 the offense, and you choose to forgive, and you leave it in God's hands, and you never bring it up. Very Jesus-like. Very much in line with Matthew chapter 18. Humility, not causing a brother to stumble, believing in Jesus, who, by the way, is the Prince of Peace. So as you go to make peace, remember you're in line with Christ. Last thing, what about binding and loosing? What about 
Jesus' words where two or three have gathered in his name, verses 18 through 20, it's not what you might think. The binding and loosing. Verse 18, I truly I say, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. The idea is, whatever you decide upon here in this context, God's already done that. God's already decided that. Verse 19, again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. And then the verse that gets used and misused so much, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. People will pray, oh Lord, thank you. You say that where there's two or three gathered, you're in their midst. Thank you for being with us. No, he's with you when you're alone. What this is about is that Jesus is, is giving assurance of his presence to the people that are engaging in church good stuff. It's, it's the assurance of his presence. It's the, it, by his spirit. It is the, the authority by, through his word when you do what he says to do. He, what he's promising is divine direction. Verse 20 is a solid verse to use for the deity of Christ. He is claiming to be God because he is. I'm with you. It's, it's the Shekinah glory of God, the divine presence. It's the same authority, by the way, that was given to Peter in chapter 16, which we see now that it was the authority given to the church. Not to Peter individually, but to the church. By his word, by God's word. That time between the first and second comings of Christ, when the church would be in operation, and and in chapter 16 he's talking about the universal church here he's talking about local assemblies of believers and he's giving them assurance i'm with my church i'm going to bless my church i die i'm going to die for my church christ died for our sins it's his church it's always going to be his church so why do we go to so much trouble why would you want to go to this much trouble why would you want to put yourself on the line Why would you want to put yourself in in line to be misunderstood? Why would you want to put yourself online to be falsely accused of doing something wrong when you're with all your heart wanting to do what God says? Why? To obey God and be blessed by Him. And to have Him say, well done, good and faithful servant. We are a reflection of Christ. God is calling. He's getting his bride ready. I'm going to officiate at a wedding this afternoon. And there is a bride getting ready right now. And brides, they get ready. and They want to look all good on the outside. But most importantly, a bride wants to get ready on the inside. Internally. To receive her groom. Jesus is returning. His people need to be ready. He's getting us ready. But he wants us to be preaching the gospel unhindered. He doesn't want broken relationships in the body of Christ hindering preaching the gospel. So make the peace. Make the peace. Christ made peace by the blood of his cross. Make the peace, trusting God in Christ for wisdom. Let's pray. Lord God, we praise you. We thank you, Lord, that if we're saved, we're saved by grace through faith in Christ.
for your glory. And Lord, that we have the, if we're saved, we have the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit convicts us of our sins. And the Holy Spirit does a work in us to move us to not care what others say, that when our hearts are tender before you, when, when we know there are things that you want us to, to be and to do, Lord, give us grace to not let those moments pass without offering ourselves to you. Lord, give us grace to not let this moment pass without doing what we know you're calling us to do. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.